0: The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment.
1: Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Since the 1950s, there's been a hundred-fold increase in the incidence of inflammatory bowel diseases, ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's disease. Prior to the 1950s, irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, didn't exist in the medical literature and now troubles over 15% of the U.S. population. In that same time period, there's been a similar rise in acid reflux, indigestion, gas, and bloating, and today's guest, Dr. Jillian Sarno-Tita, is here on Health Watch to talk about why and what we can do about it. Dr. Tita is a naturopathic physician and creator of the Fixture Digestion Gut Restoration Program. She's also the co-author, along with chef and food writer, Jeanette Bessinger, of her new book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Tita.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Dr. David. How are you?
1: Good. So let's start out with um, what your thoughts are on why we've seen such a rise in digestive orders in the last half century.
0: Ooh, that's such a juicy question and really deserves a lot of consideration because, The short answer is there's not going to be one satisfactory answer. I think that for a question like this, we have to look at many different layers and inputs that are contributing to the overall result. So if we look back at our environment of the last 50 years, and environment includes not just the food that we eat and the air that we breathe and the water that we drink, but also our internal environment in terms of stress and thinking patterns, obligations, self-pressure, things like this. So I think that based on our environment, we are seeing significant amounts of change based on the ramifications that these have on our digestive system. So I think it's a lot of things. I think there are things in our environment in terms of our nutrition, in terms of pollutants or toxicants that we are exposed to at an exponential, you know, just an unprecedented rate, um, and also our own internal stressors.
1: So you start out the book talking about how the gut is both a second brain, a detox organ, and the first line of defense of, of the immune system. And, and, and obviously, uh, all of these things are, are taking a hit if, if these changes have been happening over the last 50 or 60 years. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about why the gut is, is central to, to health, not just for people with digestive disorders?
0: Oh, yeah. This is another great question. So I often refer to the gastrointestinal tract as the central station of the body. And the reasons for this really are twofold. One is because the process of digestion itself requires so many inputs it requires that we eat a diet that is appropriate for us it requires that our ability to actually digest and, or excuse me break down our food both mechanically and biochemically is intact we also need our microbiome our 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 um what we would call like the the the, the gut flora to be intact and robust and healthy we need this lining of our GI tract, top to bottom, to be having good integrity and intact and robust and healthy. So there's a lot of factors that go into good digestion. That's one side of the coin. And then the other side of the coin is the fact that the the large intestine is one of the five major organs of detoxification. A vast number of our hormones and neurotransmitters are created, recycled, and have receptors for them in the GI tract. We have an entire nervous plexus that equals the density of our spinal cord that is living in the tissues from our esophagus all the way down to our rectum. So there are so many inputs and avenues through which the GI system affects the rest of the body. So in this way, there's virtually no other cell or system in our body that the GI system is not communicating with every minute of every day. So even in people who might not have overt GI dysfunction, a lot of issues can actually be tied back to suboptimal gastrointestinal functioning. And I see this a lot in things like headache and brain fog and joint pain and things like acne and eczema and dermatitis, things that when you're first going to your doctor, the first thing that pops in their head is not the gastrointestinal system, but that ultimately you can find the cause there.
1: Well, one of the more interesting chapters for me in in the natural solutions for digestive health was on constipation and, if, when you talk about the colon being one of the major detoxification organs, obviously if you're constipated, you'll, you'll be potentially reabsorbing or being in contact with toxins for a longer period of time. But you also talk about how we'll, we will reabsorb hormones, and particularly mm-hmm. estrogens. And, and if we have a higher level of estrogens, potentially we have a higher risk for all sorts of different diseases I know there have even been studies on, on constipation and risk for breast cancer, for instance.
0: Yes. So the GI tract is one of the, the major avenues through which we excrete, we get rid of estrogens. So how estrogens are metabolized is they go through the liver, and the liver essentially packages them up and sends them to the colon for us to poop them out. If we're not pooping them out regularly they're just sitting in the colon well the colon has a blood supply and so many of these compounds, particularly estrogens and estrogens get resorbed back into general circulation and as you know everything that ends up in general circulation ends up back at the liver well the liver is busy with today's stuff you know it already did yesterday's stuff and so in this way we can say that if the colon is constipated the liver can become constipated and so what this does is this adds to the overall estrogenic burden of the body. And we can see a wide variety of non-GI effects manifest from that. We see acne. We can see fibrocystic breast disease. We can see worsening PMS. We can see uterine, um, uterine fibroids. We can see ovarian cysts. All of these things are quite heavily prevalent in our constipated clients.
1: And again, something that a conventional doctor might not even think of if, if someone's coming in for PMS or for, for ovarian cysts, that their bowel function may be actually at the root of the, of these conditions.
0: Yeah. Typically, I typically I have to agree with you in the sense that most doctors are not asking about digestion when, some, when a woman comes in for acne or PMS. And it's kind of a bummer, but most physicians don't even ask their patients, and, I, and I'm being very categorical categorical here because many do but there are plenty that do not ask about bowel function at all during a visit like this and it is such a powerful cornerstone so then the woman is going you know she's going to her gynecologist for her pms she's going to a neurologist for her headaches and she's going to um her her dermatologist for her acne and really all she needs to do is get regular with her bowels and it
1: will clear it all up or most of it up we're talking today to Dr. Jillian Sarno-Tita about her new book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. So, Dr. Tita, one of the things you mention in the book, uh, a, a term that isn't used in, in conventional uh, medicine, di- a digestive fire and the importance of mm. having a good digestive fire. So tell us what you are meaning by digestive fire and what its role is in, in health.
0: So I sort of coined the term digestive fire as a way to talk about the body's ability to break down proteins, carbohydrates, and fats into their constituent building block molecules, which would be amino acids, starches, fatty acids, through the use of pancreatic enzymes, stomach acid, and bile. Now, in terms of what this means for digestive health, it means a lot of things. Our small intestine works best in terms of its absorption and transport if these macronutrients are broken down into these teeny tiny particles. If they're not broken down into teeny tiny particles, there's a couple different consequences that can happen. One is that you're more likely to experience gas and bloating around meals this is simply because the small intestine wants everything in tiny particles and if they're not there you're going to get a type of revolt from the small intestine as those foods work further down the GI tract and hit the large intestine where our gut flora lives they're sort of on double time they have to really work hard to break down these things so you can get even more gas and bloating The other piece of this puzzle is that when foods aren't appropriately broken down, they are more likely, particularly proteins, to elicit a provocation, a response, an immune response from the immune system. We particularly think about this in terms of gluten sensitivity, whether it be celiac disease or non-celiac gluten intolerance. So there's you know, several main consequences of that, gas and bloating, and then immune provocation. And if that immune provocation goes on long enough and enough inflammation is generated in the small intestine, then you can get into things like, you know, suboptimal nutrient absorption, things like leaky gut, accumulating food sensitivities,
1: and so forth. Well, in... in. Naturopathic medicine, there are all sorts of things that get looked at that are not um, diseases per se. they are functional imbalances and that are pretty much missed in a typical uh, primary care uh, conventional medicine doctor visit. And a couple of them that come to mind are low stomach acid, low pancreatic enzyme output, both of which are pretty common and which are often never diagnosed unless someone's seeking care from someone uh, with a more of a naturopathic persuasion, can you can you um, paint a brief symptom picture for each of those? in Case we have listeners out there and and a light bulb goes off that maybe they should explore their their stomach acid output and their pancreatic output.
0: Sure. So for for pancreatic output, if someone has been going through a time of high stress where they are underslept and they're maybe not eating the best. And they find themselves stressing out more often than not, and <laughs> and they're not getting any exercise, that sort of begins to set the stage. In terms of symptoms, for low enzyme and acid, We want to think about things like gas and bloating are huge, um, particularly right after eating or drinking something. Those are really big. Also, undigested food in the stool can also be a sign of low acid and low enzymes. There are a lot of overlapping symptoms between the two. When I start to think about should I supplement with acids or not, I look at history of acid-blocking drug use. I look at age. And then I look at things like is the person nauseous in the morning? Do they wake up with zero appetite? Do they get nauseous if they take a supplement on an empty stomach? Are their nails really brittle? You know, are their nails flaking off? What's the quality of their skin look like? Is there a history of iron deficiency anemia or B12 deficiency? These are the things that I would that I would look at. Um, acid supplementation is contraindicated in those with GERD or and or gastritis. And so, I tend to not use those things in these populations.
1: And, and people who do have acid reflux or gastritis, uh, tell us about the downside of, of starting with acid blockers or using them as a long-term solution for these conditions.
0: Yeah, they shouldn't be used as a long-term as a long-term solution. They can be used in the interim to break the discomfort cycle as you begin to actually heal the lining of your. GI tract and actually look for the root of why you got the ulcer or the gastritis in the first place. The issue with things like reflux or heartburn is that it's not, it's hardly ever, let me qualify, it's hardly ever an issue of too much acid. It's often an issue of acid in the wrong place. Our body puts an enormous amount of energy and effort. It's very energetically expensive to make stomach acid. And why is this? It's because the pH of our stomach acid is so low compared to the pH of the rest of our body. Our body is around 7 pH. Our stomach is about 1 to 2. And so you can imagine the energy that's required for our body to to make this substance that can bridge that gap. So especially in people who are older, you know, who are older than 35 and 40 years old, these people, as we age and cellular function slows down, they're making less and less acid. So there is a theory that the lower esophageal sphincter is not just an anatomical sphincter, but also a physiological one, meaning that it'll stay closed in the presence of adequate stomach acid. And when there's not adequate stomach acid, it sort of creeps open. And then the stomach acid that is there will splash in and maybe the contents of the stomach will regurge up. And then the person says, oh goodness, you know, I have too much acid. And they then they get on the little purple pill. Um, so that, that's why we want to really figure out what is going on rather than just, you know, stay on stay on that little purple pill for 20 years. So, again, it's not that you can't ever use these drugs. It's just that they should be really used as a bridge as you get to the root of the problem.
1: And there's some some potential long-term health consequences from using them.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's more than a potential. And I think in the book I list about 10 or 12. We're talking about things like B12 and folate malabsorption, increased risk for hip fracture, increased risk for nephritis, increased risk of community-acquired things like pneumonia and other community-acquired pulmonary diseases. The list just goes on and on
1: and on. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to Dr. Jillian Sarnotita about her new co-authored book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. Let's talk about irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is a relatively recent medical diagnosis, and one that may or may not tell us what's going on for a patient. Why, why is that so? Why is it not clear necessarily from that diagnosis what is causing the person's symptoms?
0: Yeah, this is great. When someone, when someone comes in to see me with a diagnosis of IBS, I tell them really that IBS is just the beginning. So as you mentioned, it is a diagnosis of exclusion. So this means that the diagnosis tells us what it's not. So it's not anything anatomical. There's not anything wrong physically with the intestines. There's nothing that we can find on a blood test. There's no pathology that we can visualize with imaging studies. Yet if symptoms persist with all of these rule outs, they say it's IBS. Now, from a, and actually it's, IBS now is widely accepted as a, as a functional bowel disorder, which is nice. Because once we can introduce those terms, we then can introduce functional medicine concepts. So from my perspective, I have a little list that I like to work down when I'm working with someone with IBS. And where we go in this list or this roadmap really is determined by their symptoms. But broadly speaking, if we sketch out the the, the rough strokes here and what that would look like, we want to make sure that someone is not eating a food that they are sensitive to or that they have an allergy to. Some IBS masquerades as celiac disease, and anybody with an IBS diagnosis has to have celiac disease ruled out. However, there are plenty of foods that can cause IBS-like symptoms that one would have a sensitivity to that are beyond gluten. Things like dairy products is quite common and soy is another common one. Next, you want to make sure that the gut flora that we've talked quite a bit about is happy and healthy. It's fairly well established in the literature that people that have IBS have some degree or another of what we call dysbiosis, which is an imbalance of good beneficial bacteria and then potentially harmful or opportunistic bacteria. So if we let those good guys lapse and the bad guys fill in their shoes, that can set you up for a whole host of woes. Another very important rule out that you'll appreciate that's not really discussed much in, in conventional circles is pathogenic infection. Infection with either yeasts, infection with some type of pathogenic bacteria, or with a parasite. Under the pathogen umbrella, we also have something called Small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is when even potentially normal bacteria that are supposed to live in the small intestine, if they creep up into the small intestine, that can create issues, IBS-like issues.
1: Doctor Tita, a lot of you have a lot of sections in the in the book that deal with specific conditions. Like you go through uh, gallbladder disease, you go through ulcerative colitis, and you look at um, potential causes and also some uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions that can be used. And and probiotics and enzymes show up for a lot of these as part of of each of their plans. What would you recommend in terms of when someone goes out looking for a probiotic or a digestive enzyme, what should they be looking for in, in their supplements?
0: Great question. So for a probiotic, I'm a lot more picky with if somebody has frank GI distress, They want to be looking for a probiotic that has the label on it, hypoallergenic. And what this means is that the probiotic is not grown in a dairy or soy medium. I like people to look for a probiotic that is rich in lactobacillus and bifidobacter strains because this tends to be the predominant strains of bacteria that are found in our native flora. I also recommend that people start with a fairly higher dose, 20 to 50 billion to start working up to 100 billion, particularly if there are strong symptoms or a strong history of antibiotic use. In terms of enzymes, my enzyme requirements are a little simpler. Most enzymes you pull off the shelf are going to be fairly decent. You want to look for one that has protease, amylase and lipase in it. These are your basic guys that are going to break down your proteins, your carbohydrates and your starches. You want to take your enzymes with meals. You know, either right before or with or right after meals. Probiotics you have more flexible time and you can take that pretty much whenever it's convenient for you.
1: And should people be getting probiotics with prebiotics, with the food for the bacteria themselves, or should they be avoiding the fructooligosaccharides with their, with their uh, probiotics?
0: So that depends. For the, for the book and for most people, I, I tend to recommend just get the probiotic. Some people, particularly those with IBS, can be sensitive to prebiotics. They're a little too irritating. And so I tend to have them get their prebiotics through their food, you know, through their, their veggie intake. Um, however, if someone comes in to me and they're on a formula that has prebiotics in it and they're handling it fine, I don't necessarily swap them out. But generally speaking, I tend to say, keep your keep your probiotics you your probiotics. And I know that there's a lot of good research about pre- and probiotic supplementation together, you know, in one formula. But based on my clinical experience, I've just found that people tolerate probiotics naked, for lack of a better word, better.
1: And and I'm I'm sure there's some readers of Natural Solutions for Digestive Health that um, are surprised to see that there's a chapter on asthma, for instance. What's the connection with asthma and, and digestive health?
0: Yeah, this is really cool. And this is something that we are seeing more and more now in these more recent decades um, and this is something that is very well established in the literature and the root of the rise of asthma in the last several decades particularly in urban environments has very much to do with the health of the gut flora influencing the signaling and the predispositions as it were of the immune system. So, essentially, our environment is creating a microenvironment that our gut bacteria are experiencing that are making us more prone to atopic disease. And we can look at this as the rise of atopic disease, as the rise of autoimmune conditions. It all, you know, all roads lead back to the gut. And
1: and when you say atopic disease, just for clarification, when you say atopic disease, you're you're meaning asthma and eczema and other immune-mediated allergic responses?
0: Yes allergies, eczema, and asthma. You've got it. Itchy skin, itchy nose, itchy eyes, itchy throat, wheezy. That's atopia.
1: And it's interesting because when you look in Chinese medicine, a lot of the formulas for, say, spring allergies are also digestive formulas.
0: Yes, it's funny. I was just talking about this with my husband Keone last night. The, um, Chinese really, really knew what was going on way, way, way before Western medicine was ever was ever um, established. So, absolutely, that's a wonderful point.
1: So, uh, Dr. Tita, to end the program, maybe you could speak briefly about your your website, Fix Your Digestion.
0: Okay, so Fix Your Digestion is my blog. Um, I have several posts on there from a variety of topics, all related to gastrointestinal health. Everything from the best north foods to GI health to how to approach something like IBS to what are what is the current thinking, the current model for Crohn's disease. It is also the portal through which people can learn about my Fix Your Digestion program, which is a do-it-yourself step-by-step four week gut restoration program that actually the book is modeled after. Um, and it's sort of my launch pad into other forms of social media. I'm on I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. And it's just really a place for everyone to kind of meet and share ideas and see what it's all about.
1: And what would be a realistic expectation for someone if they if they wanted to try the four week restoration plan?
0: The feedback that I've gotten on it has been really fantastic, and had was a major driver towards towards writing the book. <clears throat> so how? How the program is structured is at the end of the four weeks, you go back and you assess your symptoms, okay? And so if symptoms are 50% better or less, there is a path to take there. If symptoms are 50 to 75% better, there's a path to take there. If symptoms are 75% or plus greater, there's a path to take there. So the program, both in the book and online, enable you to tailor it exactly for yourself. And that's really the message of the book and the program is it has to be for you. It's very difficult to stuff people into into concepts or programs that aren't appropriate for them. And so I really work hard at tailoring the, these things for the individual, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does make sense. Well, it was, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today, Dr. Tita.
0: So oh, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it.
1: We're talking today with Dr. Jillian Sarno Tita, the author of Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. You've been listening to Health Watch and stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine. Mm-hmm.